Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Get ready to pay more for food in 2022. COVID-19 continues to impact frontline healthcare workers. Environmentalists aren't completely thrilled with Hamilton's climate plan. Electra Utilities and Hydro One are teaming up on a new project here in Hamilton. We chat with Grey Cup legend and former Ticats kicker Paul Lisbaldiston. And the Formula One racing season is set to end with a bang this weekend. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The 12th edition of the Canada Food Price Reports is predicting an eye-popping 5 to 7% spike in food prices next year. Yeesh. Janet Music is a research program coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and one of the authors of this report from Dalhousie University and joins us now. Janet, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. So we've been hearing that food prices are going to go up and up and up next year, and now it's official. The 12th Canada Food Price Report says by as much as 7% in some cases. What factors are contributing to this price spike? Yeah, it's it's not a great news story for sure. Um, you know, prices have been rising steadily through 2021 with no sign of slowing down. And so some of those, you know, big, big uh, reasons why this is happening, weather, of course. So climate change is really this kind of X factor that's making, you know, growing seasons difficult across the Northern Hemisphere, not just in Canada. So if you think of droughts in Western Canada and wildfires in California, but there's also flooding happening in China and Europe. So, you know, those are our trading partners and it's a long supply chain. So, you know, when something happens at the at the front end of the supply chain, it's going to have repercussions all through. And then, of course, there's COVID-19. So, you know, the ongoing pandemic, which is, you know, I think exhausting a lot of Canadians. But, you know, it's really uh, disrupting, I think, shipping patterns. And so, you know, you're having these kind of bottlenecks. And, and when people are you know, expecting to have things on the table, but they're stuck in port. Well, you know, that's going to rise prices because supply is being shrunk a little bit. Um, and then, of course, there's demand. And so as we hit our, our vaccine targets, more people are, you know, feeling more comfortable going out in public. And so they're going out to restaurants and they're, you know, celebrating with family and friends. And food is often front and center of those celebrations. And so what we're seeing now is a perfect storm. So, kind of um, um, uh, increased demand, but like a a shortened supply. And so those things work together to raise prices. How does next year's expected price hikes of 5 to 7% compare to previous years? Well, last year, you know, we predicted about 3 to 5%, and we were, you know, close to that. We're thinking it's about 5%, and so it is higher this year. we expect Canadians to spend about $966 uh, more this year than last year. And so, and I mean 2022, and that's a family of four. So definitely people are going to see an increase. And and it's not uniform across the board. So some some categories like bakery uh, and dairy are going to be between 5 and 8%. Uh, increase. We know that the Dairy um, Commission has been asking for a price increase and they received that. So that's a long supply chain. So it's really difficult to say what prices are going to end up on the shelf. Um, And of course, restaurants. Restaurants have been feeling the pinch anyway because of COVID-19. And so they've been experiencing supply shortage, labor shortage. 
So those, you know, are increasing prices on the menu. Um, so if you're spending time in restaurants, you're going to be spending more money. So will this change shopping habits and meal management, do you think? Absolutely. And I, I think for a lot of people, um, you know, they'll have no choice to save money, right? And so, you know, it, that's not a it's not a no-go situation for a lot of people. There's ways to save money in the grocery store. And, of course, by just taking takeout, of course, at restaurants, uh, eating out a little less often. But at the grocery store, you know, you can get those deals, price compare flyers, and maybe instead of doing that one big shop on the weekend, kind of going to two or three different stores throughout the week to get the best deals. And, of course, when you're in the store, there's lots of sales going on. And so, especially at the meat counter, you can get those those enjoy tonight stickers in which you can get, you know, 50% off sometimes. And so you can take those and, and put them in your freezer. So there is, you know, hope to save some money at the grocery store. It's, it's, but we have to put a little work in to do it. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Janet Music, Research Program Coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University and one of the authors of the 12th edition of the Canada Food Price Report that's predicting food prices will increase by as much as 7% overall in 2022. You mentioned restaurants. Are we likely to see fewer items on restaurant menus or just increased prices there as well? Uh, probably both, yes. Um, I think for a lot of restaurants, especially in the West, um, you know, if they were getting supplied by BC, for example, who had those terrible floods, they're definitely going to have to rearrange their menus in the short term uh, just because the supply chain has been cut off, right? Um, and But I do think uh, in terms of attracting labor or people, to, you know, to be servers or work in kitchen staff, they have to, you know, attract those people with higher wages. And so that really doesn't have anything to do with menu items. But, you know, margins are so thin in the restaurant business that they are going to have to increase prices to, you know, uh, pay their their new workers. So it's going to be a bit of both depending on where you're located in the country and 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 just the type of restaurant we're talking about. I was reading through the report this morning and there is a section in which it details grocery theft that may or may not rise in 2022 because of these price spikes. Can you tell us a little more about that? Right. So I think, you know, most retail uh, expect to have a certain amount of loss when it comes to uh, different items. But, you know, when prices rise, I think people, you know, we're just talking about middle class or lower middle class people who can afford it, but, you know, have to make some adjustments in their in their budgets, their their monthly budgets. But for some people, um it's it's devastating to their already very tight budgets and so desperate people will do desperate things and you have to think when prices rise and and people are adjusting their shopping behavior they're not donating as much food to food banks and we do know that food bank usage is up by 20% across Canada on average and it's higher in urban areas of course in rural area areas uh, but so that is creating a perfect storm for a lot of people. So less food being donated to food banks, you know, higher prices at retail. And, you know, we can't not eat. And so this is going to happen um, at a higher rate than it would be if 
prices were lower and people were donating more. Absolutely. It certainly puts a lot more pressure on those who are struggling with food insecurity and, and uh, relying on food banks to uh, you know put food on their table. Uh, Janet, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you for your time and uh, great job on the report. We'll chat with you sometime down the road. Thanks. That is Janet Music, Research Program Coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University and one of the authors of the Canada Food Price Report. Food prices expected to go by up by as much as 7% overall in 2022. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Conference Board of Canada recently surveyed Canadian clinicians and asked them how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the delivery of health care in this country. And the responses should come as no surprise. Dr. Catherine Smart is the president of the Canadian Medical Association and a pediatrician in Whitehorse, Yukon. Good morning, Dr. Smart. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. One of the most telling stats in this survey is that 97% of doctors and nurses in this country say fatigue and burnout have increased in their workplace during the pandemic. As we enter the winter months and the daily case counts and the daily hospitalization admissions uh, regarding COVID-19 continue to rise, how concerned are you about staff burnout? I'm very concerned. You know, as you stated, we know that burnout has been escalating significantly across healthcare professions and particularly for people that have been on the front lines of this. Um, And, you know, as we're heading now deeper into the winter, we're starting to see case counts rise. We're facing this new variant of concern of which it's unclear what that impact is going to be. I think it's very worrisome about what that means for our staff providing care. Um, And I think what was really interesting about this report is it really showed that the biggest source of distress for people is of concern that they're not able to deliver the care they want to deliver for patients. Um, And I think that's really important for people to understand that, that most burnout comes from feeling like you're failing the people you're hoping to serve. And that's really a level almost what we sometimes call moral injury that's hard to address because it has to do with the entire system not working the way it should. A big, if not the biggest factor when it comes to doctors and nurses feeling um, burned out is understaffing. And 97% of respondents to the Conference Board of Canada survey said their patient-to-staff ratios were inadequate. Is there a cure for understaffing on the horizon? Well, it's a really difficult problem right now in terms of the short term because we know that the staff that we have have been deployed. Many of them have been redeployed to support some of these acute clinical areas that are experiencing issues with staffing. We've seen a loss, especially in nursing, you know, a level of attrition we've not seen before. And we don't really have healthcare professionals, you know, currently on the sidelines that we can redeploy into the system. So in the short term, there is really significant pressures on the people still there uh, providing the services, and that's really challenging. In the longer term, I think it it speaks to what we've really been advocating for with the government is saying, you know, we need better human health resource planning in this country so we don't end up in this situation again. But, you know, I'm, I'm definitely concerned for folks over these next few months about how people are going to be able to continue to tolerate the workloads that that are being presented to them. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton is Dr. Catherine Smart, president of the Canadian Medical Association, also a pediatrician in Whitehorse, Yukon. Rick Samprin with you this morning. Um, the latest COVID-19 modeling here in Ontario shows a spike of 3,000 daily cases and as many as 400 ICU admissions by the end of this month or the middle of January. Are Canadian pediatricians ready for yet another wave? Well, I think it's very worrisome. You know, when you look at the projections in Ontario, you can see what happens really depends on what decisions are made next, right? What is the vaccination rate of kids 5 to 11? 
uh, what are the public health strategies put in place? Do we start decreasing our contacts slightly compared to what they are right now? Those are all things that could bend that curve. Um, so I think, you know, it's really important right now that we have strong leadership from government supporting public health to make some of these decisions to prevent this escalation of cases, because I think it is really concerning about how the system's going to cope with that. And, you know, in terms of pediatrics, we're fortunate in that there hasn't been a large amount of children with COVID hospitalized, which is encouraging. We don't know what that's going to look like with this new variant of concern, but we are seeing huge escalation in cases in younger kids, which will need more hospitalizations. Um, and at the same time, we're seeing a resurgence of many other viruses that make children sick at the same time. So certainly the pressures on children's hospitals, on pediatric providers, on communities across the board are increasing. Dr. Smart, you certainly have, uh, as president of the CMA, have your finger on the pulse of what is happening uh, with our healthcare system in this nation. When, when you glance across the country, what COVID-19 trends are you most concerned about it and what's giving you a feeling of promise and hope? I think the thing I'm most concerned about is just how healthcare workers are feeling. You know, again, in this report, we heard a lot of healthcare professionals saying they feel isolated, undervalued, they're not being heard by government. Um, so I think making sure that their voices are considered in policies, that we're not getting ahead of ourselves. You know, I think everyone wants COVID to be over, as do I, um, but it's not. And we have to continue to listen to medical experts around what makes sense and how we keep our society as functional as possible. And if we don't do that, we're going to end up back with stricter measures than we maybe needed to have if we were being cognizant of what we can do to keep things in control moving forward. So I'm really hopeful that people listen. Um, you know, what makes me optimistic is, as I think I still see people showing up every day caring for Canadians, that passion for what they do is there. They want to make sure that people get the services that they need. And they're still passionate about contributing to helping with systems change to create a better health system. And I think we need to make sure we're leveraging that passion that people have for their work. And we do that by recognizing them, valuing them and giving them a seat at the table. That's amazing and unsurprising to hear because the frontline workers, doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals have been outstanding during this pandemic. Dr. Smart, thanks for joining us today and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much couple of other key findings from the Conference Board of Canada survey. The pandemic is changing the way healthcare services are delivered. Patient volume is increasing. Technology use has expanded and more services have shifted to remote delivery. I think we can say that for most businesses, uh, healthcare related or not. And 57% of doctors and 88% of the nurses reported that their workloads have changed in the past year. AKA, they're a lot busier. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. With the pandemic, the first thing we did was make damn sure that everybody understood that it was an emergency and that there were going to be major changes that had to happen and major sacrifices that had to be made by individuals. Instead, we're on a, oh, well, we'll get everything done by 2050 and nobody here will have any responsibility for it because nobody here will likely be alive by 2050 or at least none in my age category. That is local environmentalist Don McLean responding to a staff report yesterday that says the city of Hamilton has made significant progress in reducing its corporate greenhouse gas emissions. And McLean says progress in cutting community emissions has flatlined since the city declared a climate emergency in 2019. So what should we make of Hamilton's latest climate update? Let's ask our next guest from Environment Hamilton, Ian Borsuk. Ian, good morning. Welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Give us your take on the city's latest climate report. What do you like? What do you don't like? 
Well, I, uh, on the one hand, uh, as, as you did say in the lead up there, we have made some pretty uh, significant uh, progress with regards to the corporate emissions. So the emissions from activities undertaken by the city of Hamilton directly. So think something like the trucks uh, and the activities or the operations of the city of Hamilton exactly. Um, we've seen some really great uh, plans come forward, like the Green Fleet Strategy, which is going to convert all of the vehicles that the city of Hamilton uses for forestry and things like that uh, to uh, electric vehicles. Um, and really, uh, plans like that have been really effective. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the corporate uh, emissions uh, are a, a very small piece of the pie when we're looking at the entire city of Hamilton and including everyone who lives in here. Uh, be that industry and residents. And as uh, Dr. Don McLean was saying, um, yes, uh, community emissions have more or less flatlined. And what we in from Environment Hamilton were really trying to emphasize to city council yesterday that I that I think was receptive is that um, we've been making this progress with really, really at the end of the day, really not a whole lot of additional investment. Um, the city of Hamilton has two full-time staffers working on climate change issues. Uh, for a portion of the pandemic, we only had one um, as they were uh, one of our senior project leads was re-diverted to work on contact tracing, I believe. Um, meanwhile, uh, other municipalities, for example, Holton Hills, a much smaller community, hired five additional staffers a few years ago to work on their plans. So while we've made some really great progress, um, we really uh, uh, encourage the city of Hamilton to really dedicate more staff time and resources to ensure that these plans that we're working on uh, can actually be implemented into the future. Apart from that, making more of a commitment, at least in terms of staff and, and eyeballs on this issue, what are some of the measures that this city should be doing to continue to cut those community emissions? Yeah, so we know where those community emissions are coming from. Uh, the city of Hamilton has been reporting on uh, emission data for, for many years now. Usually it's every second year just because it takes a while for those emissions to catch up. Um, and it's actually quite interesting in the city of Hamilton. Um, we, we do have industry and industry is the largest sing single source of emissions uh, in the city that I'm sure uh, no listeners are surprised to hear. Um, but industry has actually been cutting down on their emissions. Um, that's partially due to some you know, economic issues, but also uh, you know, the province of Ontario getting off coal was a, was a huge impact for that. Um, but residential and commercial energy emissions have also gone down, um, but not enough. And while that's been happening pretty consistently, transportation emissions have been going up every year. Um, and that's uh, what I would say is the, the key issue to look at is when everything's going down, but we have one sector going up and we know it's a pretty big sector. Um, that's something to pay, definitely pay attention to. We know the LRT is still years away. We know the electrification of buses is a few years away. We also know that electric vehicles, although there are some, they're not a lot. Uh, we know by 2035, every new vehicle in Canada is going to be electric. How big of an impact will those three issues have on what is still a climate emergency and will be for years to come? Well, with, with, with regards to transportation, it's really important to note that um, while, while a bus being converted from natural gas or diesel to electricity is, is quite positive, where public transit really comes into play and where the LRT is really going to become really key is that it's going to encourage more people to take public transit. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, as I like to say to people, if it's an electric bus, that's great. Uh, but if you're leaving your car, your personal vehicle at home and taking public transit, 
that's even better, no matter how that bus is running. So with the LRT, you know, further intensification of the downtown core uh, could compact that with the city's recommend uh, with the city's recent uh, decision not to uh, expand the urban boundary. Uh, we are positioning ourselves to be able to address this quite well. Um, but again, uh, with regards to the plans that are being implemented, we have something called the Community Energy and Emissions Plan that has been been worked on for six years now, still isn't complete. And I have some serious concerns that without additional staff time and resources, um, that it may take even longer to, to get this plan approved. Um, but then the implementation is a, is a whole other beast that I don't know if we're quite ready for as a city. We're talking about Hamilton's latest climate update on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. And our guest is Environment Hamilton's Ian Borsuk. City councillors have asked staff to report back with an annual climate change report card. What impact will this have, if any? Well, it's um, the the city of Hamilton uh, did direct staff to report semi-annually, um, and they were unable to do that in 2021 um, as a result of uh, staff capacity, which is uh, why we're raising it as a major concern, as well as COVID-19. Um, and that annual report card uh, that was brought forward as an idea by Councillor Brad Clark um, was for the purpose of making the, the, the various different reports and, and updates that staff do for city council a little bit more digestible for the public and making that much more easily accessible by the public. So yesterday's report, the city can access, uh, anyone in the city can access by going to the city website, going to the agenda from the meeting and access, accessing the staff report. Um, but I think what Councillor Clark was getting to that we really support is really ensuring that the public has an idea of what we're doing. Um, you know, we at Environment Hamilton, we engage with the public quite a bit, and there can be a pretty stark contrast in terms of people's positive outlook on climate change and what the prospects are, what we need to do into the future. Um, and that really depends on how much they know about what we're doing right now, um, which is substantial, and we need to really ramp it up. It is true, but being able to communicate that to the public in, in, in an easy to understand way that's easily accessible, that we can look at these trackable emission data and, and understand where it's coming from, I think will go a really long way in ensuring that the city of Hamilton, the community of Hamilton, is uh, willing partners in this, you know, in this uh, experiment of trying to avert uh, further catastrophe. Ian, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, and um, we'll chat sometime down the road. Yeah, thank you so much, Rick, and uh, thank you so much for having me. That is uh, Environment Hamilton's Ian Borsuk chatting to us about Hamilton's latest climate update. You can find out more details online at 900CHML.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML. We're talking a little bit about power because Electra Utilities and Hydro One have announced that they're going to be making some critical investments to enhance power in the city as well as support economic growth. Seems like a win-win, doesn't it? Mike Matthews is the Executive Vice President of Asset Strategy and Operations at Electric Utilities and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Mike. Hi, Rick. Good morning, and thanks for having me this morning. Yeah, tell us about this new partnership with Hydro One. What are you guys up to? Well, Hydro One is making some significant investments at both uh, Gage and uh, Kenilworth transmission stations uh, in Hamilton. Uh, there, those are old stations, seventy years old, with uh, with you know, if you can imagine, transformers and equipment of that age uh, getting to end of life. Uh, significant investment by Hydro One to upgrade those stations, uh, and we're working along uh, with Hydro One. 
because that type of work really requires a lot of uh, collaboration and coordination on our end uh, when we're reconfiguring our, our distribution network in order to, uh, to allow the project to go ahead without having uh, interruptions to our customers in the area. What is the average lifespan or the, the, the final lifespan of a station like that? And is it, you mentioned it's near the end. Is that pretty much it? Yeah, I mean, most uh, distribution and transmission assets have a life of, you know, we say 50 years, but they can last up to 70 years, depending on the condition. Uh, so those, those assets in those stations are getting to that point. And so the new assets that are, are being placed, uh, put in place by both Hydro One and Electra uh, will last another 50 years, or maybe we can even stretch it out if all things go well. With many things that are that old, it's, um, you know, if you're renovating a home that's that old, or if you're working on a car that's really old, uh, more often than not, you'll just replace many, if not everything. Is this the case here, or are you able to work with some of the old infrastructure and kind of uh, implement some of the new stuff? Uh, it'll, it's pretty well replacing all the assets piece by piece. Uh, the large, the large uh, transformers in the stations, uh, all the all the bus uh, that you see if you drive by those stations, and then on the electric side, all the uh, circuits that come in tie into those stations and then feed out onto the network. So anything in and around right at the station will be upgraded, uh, re- actually replaced. And you know we're also upgrading a lot of that. Uh, technology with new modern technology that helps with grid automation that that we feel is so important uh, to provide uh, reliability, resiliency, and flexibility to the network. When is this project going to be completed? And I guess the most important reason or question is, you know, what are the benefits going to be? Well, uh, the the project uh, Kenilworth TS work actually started in 2018. Gage uh, TS work started more recently, and both projects will wind up in 2023. Uh, we really see this as, a, as an important, uh, important collaboration uh, to really improve the reliability to residential, commercial, industrial customers and the steel manufacturers that are so important to the city of Hamilton. So. You know, we're seeing, you know, climate change is bringing some more severe weather. Uh, We want to build the system to be more resilient, uh, to protect small businesses and large industrial customers from power outages, you know, that interrupt their daily business processes. How many customers are we talking about, both residential and and business slash industrial? Uh, Well, I don't have that exact number, but there's, you know, that's quite a, you know, the industrial commercial area is really, a, I would say, the largest aspect of the uh, the customer base that we're serving out of these TSs, especially the steel manufacturers in the area. Uh, so it's it's large, uh, large loads that really re- rely on, on really strong, reliable power. Uh, you were saying that these changes and upgrades are being made to improve, obviously, the reliability, uh, you know, a.k.a. fewer power outages. Has that area of the city been plagued by power issues? Well, I think, yeah, unfortunately, once you do have a station uh, outage and we were having some issues with station outages in the area. Um, yeah, that can. And when you've got older infrastructure uh, that is less flexible, uh, you do end up with some fairly lengthy outages when when a system, when something does happen, whether it's a piece of equipment failing or something like you know a car uh, hitting a pole, something of that nature. 
so there have been outages in the area, and I think this work will really go a long way to minimizing that uh, in that specific area of the city. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Mike Matthews, an executive VP at Electra Utilities. They and Hydro One teaming up on some critical investments to enhance power in the city, as well as support economic growth, obviously helping small businesses, big businesses uh, get through the day without any outages. Could this also potentially lead to lower hydro rates? Well, I would say uh, long term, it will help mitigate hydro rates because, you know, when you have outages, uh, the cost to restore and repair uh, when it's unplanned is more costly than when you do it in a planned manner. So uh, it would not, not necessarily go to lowering rates, but it would definitely go to mitigating future rate increases. We're going to see a lot more electric vehicles on the roads in the coming years. Is Electra ready for the increased demand? Yeah, we believe we have system capacity uh, to, uh, and and that we're really, uh, you know, we're really uh, keen on that electric vehicle uh, proliferation throughout the city. We see the real benefits, well, throughout our whole whole service territory, the benefits of that from a climate change and net zero aspect. Uh, We have the capacity in the system. There may be certain areas uh, specifically where we might have to do those upgrades uh, if we see a large proliferation in a neighborhood, but we think we're well prepared uh, to meet the demands and and we're very, um, you know, we see it as a great opportunity uh, from societal benefits and also to Electra. That's great news. And certainly anybody, anyone who has an electric vehicle now or is thinking about jumping into one, they should be encouraged to know that uh, the, uh, the assets will be there to help them out. Mike, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us and uh, good luck with this project. Well, thanks very much, Rick. And again, thanks for having me on this morning. You got it. Mike Matthews, Executive VP, Asset Strategy and Operations at Electra Utilities. You can find out more online. Just Google Electra or Hydro One and uh, get more details on uh, this uh, pretty cool project. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, We've been talking with some great Grey Cup legends this week. Anthony Calvillo, Russ Jackson, and this guy is in that group as well. Longtime former Hamilton Tiger Cats kicker Paul Osbaldiston joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Ozzy, good morning. Good morning to you, Rick. You played in, I'm going to get right into it. You played in three Grey Cups, 86, 98, 99. You won in 86 and 99. What was the best part about playing in a Grey Cup? Um, yeah, I was uh, actually, I was lucky enough to play in four and coaching one, so it's five for me. It's just the. That's the goal you start the season with every year. And when you achieve that, um, you know, the feelings that you have that particular week, the way you're treated, the anticipation of are you going to be, you know, a winner or a loser, it's, there's nothing in the world that, you know, you can replace with that. It's just a fantastic feeling. You booted a record six field goals in the 86 Grey Cup. That was your rookie season. Then you had to wait a while before you got back to the Cup. Did you have any thoughts as the years went by that, geez, I'm never going to get back there? Absolutely. I felt like I was 12 years old in 1986, and I felt like <laughs> it was 112 in, in 99. It, you know, it, it just seemed like it was never going to happen. You know, we lost that uh, incredible game to Saskatchewan, uh, you know, in the Sky Dome in 89. And then, uh, you know, what a great feeling it was after uh, a 2-8 and eight season you know, in 1998 to go to the Eastern final and then go to the Grey Cup in Winnipeg. 
and to have our hearts crushed by Calgary, it was, uh, you know, it was heartbreaking. But when we went to training camp in 1999, there was an absolute consensus that we're here to get through training camp, get through two exhibition games, 18 regular season games, and we're going to win the cup. We had no doubt in our mind. And the teams were so similar from 1986 the 1999 it was a bunch of unselfish players that knew their role that would do anything to win and they didn't care if they got noticed you know whether you whether you for me if i kicked 10 field goals uh, and we lost i'd rather kick 10 extra points and win and go unnoticed and every player on both those teams had the same same type of attitude in 86 you came in bernie ruff got hurt so mike mccarthy and and the ticats say hey came come on in what was that like jumping into that ticats team it was uh it was a little bit of a shock because i only had about uh two days of practice before we went to play toronto at exhibition stadium and uh you know at the time the team wasn't doing very well at all they'd won a labor day but that you know at that time we were you know, I think two and seven or one and one and eight. And uh, from there, we just went on an absolute tear. You know, Mike Kerrigan really stepped up his game. The defense was absolutely the best that I've ever seen in the league. They were phenomenal. We won as many games with our defense as we did with our offense, you know, and, and when you go to a gray cup and the three quarterbacks that you're facing uh, on the Eskimos are Matt Dunnigan, Tracy Ham, and Damon Allen, <laughs> and and you know there's some good scouting right there. Let me tell you. Yeah. Um, but at halftime, they've got minus yards on offense. I I've never seen that in a CFL game, other than the '86 Grey Cup, where you have a Canadian Football League team that doesn't have a positive yard in a half of football unheard of. That's pretty crazy. We're chatting with Grey Cup legend Paul Osbaldiston, longtime kicker of the Hamilton Tiger Cats on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. I was at a Grey Cup event last night and the stories were just flowing like crazy, including one from 86. You guys are hammering Edmonton in the Grey Cup. There's a story that Leo Ezrins and Dave Sovey are on the sideline, both played amazing that day, and they're thinking that they have the top Canadian award wrapped up until you go out and kick a record six field goals. Was there conversation on the sideline between you guys about that award? They've haunted me over the years <laughs> with... Uh saying that I stole it from them. It was the, the, the award was a big screen Sony TV. <laughs> and uh, Dave always thought it was his TV. And I said, well, you know what, maybe you should have got another sack and it could have been your TV. But uh, it, it was hard to pick that, that day. I mean, everybody on my entire team played so well. Um, you know, I, it, it was uh, an amazing team, an amazing group of teammates. And like I said, it was so similar to 99. We always had each other's back. We always did whatever it took to, to help your teammate out. And and the locker room was an absolute joy to be in on both those teams. And I think that's uh, that's a really good sign when you have a locker room that's like that. The 99 team, as the story goes, you lose in 98, training camp day one in 99. Ron Lancaster puts on the videotape of the Stampeders celebrating with the Cup, and that was really all the motivation you guys needed. It kind of boils our blood a little bit, to say the least. <laughs> Uh, it was unexpected, but uh, Coach Lancaster was a, a very good motivator, to say the least. He was an incredible coach. He he knew the game better than anybody. He knew the conditions better than anybody. Clock management, which wins and loses more games in the CFL than anything else. He was a master at it. And 
we didn't really need that motivation. Um, like I said, when we showed up, it was, hey, let's get through this, win the cup, and then we can have some fun. We're chatting with Paul Osbaldiston, former Ticats kicker, uh, latest Grey Cup legend here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. I was talking to Mike McCarthy last night, and I said, you got to give me some dirt on Ozzy. And he had, well, I, you know, i got a million stories, none really that he could share on air, and, and, and it, with the exception of this one. Uh, he rented you his 1979 four-speed Chevette when you first got to Hamilton. How did that thing drive? Um, it drove well. I didn't. <laughs> because you're six foot three, trying to wedge yourself into this small car. Well, I kind of told a fib and said that I had driven a stick shift before, <laughs> and I really hadn't. So, I think that within the first week, um, I kind of was at Eastgate Mall. And I went to go out, and the stick shift kind of came off in my hand. Wow. And I guess I was kind of pushing it a little bit too hard back and forth. But, um, you know, that was the that was kind of the small part of it. I don't know if he noticed that when I went to visit Mark Naperkowski, I tried to back up out of the ramp of his apartment building, and the huge steel garage door came down and crushed the roof. <laughs> and then about a week later, I made a left turn on James Street, and it was illegal, so a police officer turned, you know, pulled me over. And I had a BC driver's license. The car was registered in Arizona, mm-hmm. and the plates were from Illinois and Chicago because he had been with the USFL and moved around. So the police officer just, he spent about 20 minutes in his car, and then he came back and said, you know, I should write you up for all kinds of stuff, but go win on Sunday. Wow. Uh, they don't they don't make them like those old Chevettes anymore. They don't make them like Paulus Baldiston either. Ozzy, appreciate the time today. Enjoy the game on Sunday. I will. Thank you, Rick. That is go Paul. Cats, go. You got it, Oski Weewee. Paulus Baldiston, longtime Hamilton Tiger Cats legend, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This weekend is the final racing weekend for Formula One. What a season it has been. Probably the best F1 season in recent memory, that is for sure. Eric Thomas from the Raceline Radio Network, Canada's National Radio Motorsport Authority and host of Raceline Radio Sundays here on CHML from 8 until 9, joins us. Eric, good morning. Good morning, RZ. We don't do this enough. Always enjoy being on with you. And, uh, yeah, this is... uh it all comes down to the last race in uh, in Abu Dhabi and all those things that you mentioned in terms of how entertaining this season has been. It has been an unbelievably entertaining championship, and uh, it wasn't always that way. And certainly for most Canadian fans, this has been the most intriguing battle we've had in Formula One, you know, maybe since 97 when Canada's Jacques Villeneuve won his title. But uh, all in all, and you're going to ask me about the, the Netflix series, Drive to Survive, the explosion in popularity of this sport around the world has been remarkable and we go into that final race and i'm probably jumping ahead and answering <laughs> a few of your questions I that's okay I'll, I'll stop right there ask me the next question <laughs> <laughs> well that that was my first question you know yeah. abu dhabi is one of the great tracks on the circuit it provides a fitting end i think to this season yeah. all eyes are on seven-time world champion lewis hamilton in his mercedes and red bulls max verstappen who's looking to win his first championship they enter this weekend tied for first, something we haven't seen yeah. in a long, long time. F1 could not have asked for a better finale. 
No, it's like somebody scripted this thing. Yeah. I mean, we know the last couple of years we've been, you know, ravaged by COVID and of course, wow, you know, you talk about trying to string together, you know, a schedule in the NHL or or, or anything like that, even the NFL around COVID, but man, with all the global rules and, and transport between countries and quarantining and all the different rules, Formula One the last two years has really, really struggled to get a schedule up there. But you know what? Credit to them. They've been able to produce one, and that's why we're so late in the season. This would always normally be done in November, but here we are almost at the middle of December, pretty close to Christmas, and we're still going here. But down to the last race in Abu Dhabi, and it's it's tied. I mean, Lewis trying to break free from Schumacher's incredible record of seven championships. He wants eight, and this will be his fifth in a row if he does that. And the other side of this, too, and if you're an F1 diehard, you understand the manufacturer's championship, or what's known as the constructor's thing. You know, Renault versus Mercedes versus Ferrari versus Honda. That championship for the teams and for the series is actually more important than the world driving championship on the driver's side because that's where the money is and that's where the sponsorship is, and you want the manufacturers involved. And Mercedes is going to go for their eighth consecutive constructor's title. There's a lot on the line. Max Verstappen, amazing. As you say, going for one champion, his first championship, but he's just going to get better, which is which is really just uh, amazing. But what you're seeing out of Lewis, out of Lewis Hamilton, is a, a most amazing, amazing performance we've ever seen in the sport of racing automobiles. I mean, it, just to have him so dominant and so good for so long and so consistently year in and year out has, has been remarkable. And uh, coming down to that last race in Abu Dhabi, have them dead even in points. Come on, it's like it's like somebody made this up. You know? it, it, it's pretty insane. You know, yeah. uh, there was a point in the season where I think many F1 fans thought, "All right, Max has this in the bag," but Lewis has come on strong. He's won the last three. Yep. So, who has the edge this weekend, and who would you put your money on? Oh, uh, you can, I, Wow, I, I'm one of those boring traditionalists. Although I, <laughs> there's, there's a lot more to it. It's hard to bet against the incumbent, but the fact of the matter is this. You're right. Um, Christian Horner, the guy who runs that team, and Adrian Newey is a guy you don't hear a lot about, but he may be the biggest brain in that entire F1 paddock. A guy who designs the car, who puts the car together, who puts it on the racetrack, makes sure that it has a power package that will work aerodynamically. All season long, right up until these last three that you just mentioned, the Red Bull has been the quicker automobile, and, and Max has rode that thing into the battle that we're seeing now coming down to this last race. But then Lewis stuck with it, didn't give up, and that's the reason why he's won so many. But here in the last critical part of the race, right into the you know seventh game of, of a best-of-seven series in the NHL, they have come up with a few more miles an hour, a little more grunt, a little more horsepower, where right now, if you put the two cars side-by-side side and put them on a scope, the Mercedes has overtaken Red Bull in, in terms of its power, in terms of its straightaway speed, its aerodynamic properties, in terms of the engine and the power. And here we go with another, like the fast circuit, just like Saudi Arabia. Abu Dhabi has very long straightaways. This is a horsepower racetrack, and they're coming back. And they've got the, I think they've got the knockout punch, and they just grabbed this thing right at the ultra-critical portion of the season when the championship is on the line, and it's been a fascinating thing to watch. It has been. My money also on Lewis Hamilton to take this. He's got the, I think he's just a mad scientist in terms of getting to the apex at the perfect time, Mm -hmm. making the right decisions. He doesn't lose his cool. Um, Into the dance. Yeah, very much so. And that, you know, being a seven-time champion, you you know you're doing something right. But let me ask you this. Sure. Because they're tied on points, and because Max has one more win than Lewis. 
if they were to collide, and they've had some instances this year in which they have, and take oh, no. each other out of this race, which we don't want to see, would Max win based on wins? Wins? Yes, I believe so. Wow. I believe so. The, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and, and, let, and let you know that I know all the permutations and recalculations in terms of how the F1 points work, because I don't know. But I, I believe that would be the tiebreaker. That's the one thing you don't want to see. Yeah. It could happen, though. And that's why our darn game is so intriguing, is because you never know what's going to happen. And that's the one reason why this thing has been so good all year long, is the unpredictability of it. You know, not that long ago, Michael Schumacher, God bless him, and we know what happened to him, you know, he would, he would come in, get the pole, lead into the first turn, race is over before you've even seen two laps, yeah. and the championship is done in June, you know, and, and we were lamenting that fact. Right now, we're going down to the last race of the year, and nobody seems to know. But Lewis, with his... You know, his personality, you listen to him on the, the, the telling thing, the difference between the two, and it's Max, the new guy, and it's understandable somewhat. I'm not going to call him a rookie, but he's new to this game. Mm-hmm. Lewis has been there, and if you listen to him on the radio, and that's one thing about the F1 telecasts that are great. You can hear the, cha- you know, the, the conversation between uh, um, the, the guys that run the team, Toto Wolf with Mercedes and Christian Horner with, with Red Bull. The, the conversation's back and forth on the radio, and when they're trying to give Lewis information, there's like a lot of chatter on the radio, and Bono, his engineer, will come on and give him splits like you're so many seconds behind Max, whatever, and you'll hear Lewis just very calmly come on and say, Bono, lead me to it. Let him do his job. You know, I, I've got it right. Copy that, Lewis, copy that. Next, now you go to Max's radio, and it's... <laughs> Calm, calm, calm down, Max. Calm down. You know, there's a little more you know, excitement there. Yeah. And that's okay. That's the intensity that Max uses. But the difference between a guy like Lewis, who's been to the dance, and, 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 <laughs> and Max, who's trying to get to the dance is a fascinating combat. It's fascinating stuff to watch. Yeah. Uh, We've got to run here, but I do want to... Sure. We've got about 30 seconds. Netflix, and what an impact it's had. Global popularity. I'm going to... Norris McDonald from Toronto Star Wheels is going to be on the show on Sunday night on CHML, 8 mm-hmm. o'clock, uh, with Raceline. Makes a bold prediction. With the popularity across the, the world, with the Netflix series, the television numbers globally for this final race at Abu Dhabi may rival the final of the FIA World Cup in terms of totals. And I don't think he's wrong. I don't think he's wrong. The popularity has exploded because of the intrigue and the personalities. And you're seeing a contest on the racetrack that we haven't seen in a long, long time. Eat it up, racing fans. And even those who aren't racing fans who have become racing fans because of the intrigue with this, it's been a remarkable, a remarkable piece of entertainment. It has been, and it will be fun to watch Sunday. Eric, uh, always appreciate the time. Enjoy the race as well. We'll wrap it up on Sunday for you on Raceline. RZ, always great to be on with you. Merry Christmas if we don't get a chance to chat, and uh, we'll do it again soon. You got it. Have a good one. Eric Thomas, the Raceline Radio Network, Canada's National Radio Motorsport Authority. It is uh, airing on CHML Sundays from 8 until 9. It is a fantastic, action-packed show. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.